Good afternoon. It's good to see everybody. It's nice to be here in Vandalia. I haven't been here for a while. If you don't know me or don't remember me, we're probably cousins. <laughs> so that's good. That's like literally true, actually. <laughs> As we were coming in, my son Nate, he's eight. He said, I feel like I recognize these people. I said, buddy, you're related to like all of them. (laughs) One of these days when we're scoping out future mates, this will not be one of the destinations. (laughs) It's good to be related to everybody today because my topic is politics. (laughs) And I'm going to need a family-sized portion of grace (laughs) as we navigate through some of these landmines. The congregation asked me to speak on what we're calling electioneering, and that's the idea of our involvement in politics, and especially in two areas. First, a Christian's participation in secular politics. So the kind of things that we want to talk about is when and how is it appropriate for a Christian to advocate for specific parties, platforms, and politicians. And related to that, what about our concern about being political? How does that influence our participation in secular politics? So that's one side of what we need to talk about. And then the other side is politics inside of the church, politics in church business, especially the appointment of church leadership. And not, not the idea of bringing secular politics into church business, but the idea of electioneering in church business. When and how would it be appropriate to advocate for the appointment of certain people, like yourself even, to the appointment of a particular church office. So I see these really as overlapping but separate topics. So I do want to address them independently. So we'll start by talking about secular politics. About a year ago, I posted a request on social media on Facebook asking if anyone had biblical questions that I could help answer. And it was interesting to see that many of the questions that I got related to government and politics, such as, is it wrong for a Christian to speak out for our nation's freedoms? Another question was, how should we deal with evil people in government? Another question was, is it appropriate to actively fight against the government? And these are valid questions, aren't they? And these questions are right in line with the topic that we need to talk about today. I understand why we're all thinking about these things. I'm thinking about these questions, too. In the last year, we've experienced a global pandemic. We've experienced a civil rights crisis. We've experienced an especially vicious political season. All of these issues have a strong connection to government and politics. If we don't diagnose government as being the problem in these issues, we expect government to be the solution in these issues, right? So all of these things are strongly connected to government and politics. So the question is, how do we as Christians, not as American citizens, and this is the hard part, not as American citizens, but how do we as Christians fit into all of this? Should you get involved? Should you stay out? Should you say something? Should you say nothing? These are all valid questions that relate to the idea of electioneering. What responsibility do I have as a Christian to advance my belief system in the context of secular politics? 
And I do think it's perfectly reasonable to have an interest in politics. So I want to start by saying that. It's perfectly reasonable and acceptable for Christians to have an interest in politics, in government, and an interest in our civil liberties. I don't think that Christians have to be completely hands-off politics. When you think about some of the liberties that we have in this country, the freedom of speech, the freedom to assemble, the free exercise of religion, these are all written right into our Constitution. Are those valuable to us as Christians? Well, certainly they are. Those are valuable to us as Christians. So it makes sense. It's reasonable for us to have an interest in those civil liberties and have a desire to maintain those civil liberties. There's even a biblical basis for pursuing personal freedoms where maybe they don't exist. Remember what Paul said to Christian slaves in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 21. I'm sort of plucking this out of context because we need to go back to it later. But 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, in the context of personal freedom, Paul said to Christian slaves, if you can be made free, what are they supposed to do? Use it. If you can be made free, rather use it. So even in the Bible, it is understood that personal freedom has a value, that it's desirable to have freedom, and it's appropriate to seek freedom and liberty when an avenue exists. There's even a biblical precedent for God's people to have seats of power in government. Think about people like Joseph, like Esther, Daniel. These are God-fearing people that had seats of power in government. And what did they do with that influence? They used it in the interest of God's people. So I would say from that perspective, there's even a biblical precedent for that, for God's people being in governments. However... This is the main thing I want to talk about today. However, our engagement as Christians, again, not as American citizens, but from the perspective of a Christian, our engagement in secular politics has to have some boundaries. Whatever electioneering we might do as Christians has to be deeply saturated with Christian priorities. Deeply saturated with the same Christian priorities that we're supposed to apply to every decision, to every thought, to every motive, to every interaction in every situation. And the reason this can be tough is because my priorities as a Christian, are they always perfectly in line with what my priorities might be as an American citizen? I don't think so. They're not always going to be perfectly in line. And that can be a hard thing to sort out because I think especially as American Christians, when we see Christian values entangled in the governments of the American system, they might start to feel one in the same. And so our priorities can start to get mixed together and we have a hard time differentiating between our Christian priorities versus our priorities as American citizens. So what I want to talk about in this lesson is those Christian priorities that need to supersede all other priorities that we might have as human beings living on this planet. These are the priorities, I think, like I've said, need to deeply saturate every thought and every motive as we engage in secular politics. Understanding that there's a biblical basis for being engaged in secular politics but understanding also how that needs to be carefully balanced. So what are the priorities that we have to keep in mind as we engage in secular politics? 
It's the same priorities we always have. Priority number one is to honor Christ, to bring God glory. That's the chief priority. That's why we exist. That's why we're here, is to honor Christ. Paul said in Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, whatever you do, including secular, political, engineering, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Above all other interests or priorities in life, we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our first priority, even in the context, and I would say especially in the context of secular politics, our first priority has to be to honor Jesus Christ. And how we handle secular politics has the potential to bring honor to Christ or to bring dishonor to Christ. I'm going to make a statement, and I realize I may say a few things that you don't perfectly agree with, and I'm okay with that. I'm okay with you disagreeing with me, and I hope you're okay with me saying a few things that may not be perfectly in line with your present view. So this may be one of those points. Being politically involved, I think, is neutral. Being involved or not involved in secular politics, I think, is a neutral issue. In and of itself, I don't think it's right or wrong. The idea of electioneering in secular politics is not, in my understanding of the Bible, is not a Christian duty, and it's not a sin. Right? I think it's of itself a neutral issue. But what's definitely true and something I think we will all agree on is how we engage. That's not neutral. How we engage in secular politics, that's what will bring honor or dishonor to the name of Christ. And so, here's a few examples. If in the process of campaigning for our political preferences, we disparage the existing government, that's explicitly forbidden in the Bible. And so if in the process of electioneering for our preferences, we disparage the existing politicians, that brings dishonor to Christ. If we do choose... If we choose, I'm not saying we should choose or shouldn't choose, but if we choose to vocalize criticisms of governments, we must do this with the mind and mentality of our Lord Jesus Christ, with a spirit of love, with respect, without being crude or derogatory or inflammatory. That's what will honor Christ. When the world can see us as reasonable people, that honors Christ. When we can disagree with existing political systems, but do so in a way that is respectful, representing the spirit of our Lord. Because honoring Christ, and this is the hard part, honoring Christ is more important than winning any political battle. I'm sort of embarrassed to admit this, but it's kind of like disagreement in marriage. I finally learned recently, after 12 years of marriage, I finally learned that winning the argument is not necessarily a win. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, thank you. I'm not saying I've got it all figured out. I'm still in phase one. <laughs> winning the argument is not necessarily a win. Thinking again about marriage. Proving I'm right on a logical basis 
does not result in the most desirable outcome, does it? Right, yeah. (laughs) When my wife and I first got married, I assume everybody else has these experiences, so... We had the most ridiculous arguments about the most unimportant things. I still remember the time we stood in our living room. We had this hideous chair that my in-laws gave to me. And that's just part of getting married, right? Your in-laws give you ugly furniture and you, <laughs> you got to leave it in the house, okay? So, <laughs> I think I heard some amens just then. <laughs> so I got this hideous chair that needed to be disguised by a blanket. And my wife and I had this horrendous argument about how to put the blanket on the chair. I was right. right? But winning that argument on a logical basis did not have the most desirable outcome. right? And so when you think about marriage, the most important thing is not winning the argument on a logical basis. The most important thing is ending that argument in a way so that my wife still feels loved and respected and valued. That's where the win is. That's the win. I do think the same thing applies on a political basis. Winning a political battle on the basis of logic, even if you are right, that doesn't mean the outcome is going to be a win. And so this idea of prioritizing the way that we honor the name of Jesus, I do think this helps to answer one of the questions I was told to address. Does our concern about being perceived as political stand in the way of doing what we can to defend our civil liberties? Let me read that again. Does our concern about being perceived as political stand in the way of doing what we can to defend our civil liberties? And I think the answer is yes, actually. Our concern about being perceived as political can stand in the way of protecting our liberties, and sometimes, maybe not always, but sometimes it should, actually. Because how we're perceived matters. And so sometimes how we are perceived should moderate the way and when we engage in politics. Here's what I mean by that. Even in political conversations, in electioneering, the world should first see us as advocates for Christ, not electioneers for a political party. The world should see us first as loyal Christians. That's how they should perceive us, not necessarily as loyal partisans. We want the world to see us as reasonable, humble, God-fearing people that proclaim the name of Christ above any other name. And we can do that. You know, I imagine a lot of you are like me, that when you see political positions that are based in, you know, fallacious arguments or things that you know will be damaging to the freedoms of this country, you you know that that fire you feel inside of you? you? I know some of you feel that, right? That fire is not wrong. It just has to be moderated by this priority, that honoring Christ is more important than winning that battle. So that's priority number one. Priority number two, closely related to that. In the context of secular politics, we have to make sure that above our interest in secular politics is advancing the kingdom of Christ. We sing a song, This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Do we mean that or not? 
Do you see yourself as a pilgrim and stranger here or not? Yes, we can, and maybe sometimes should, be active participants in secular politics. But when we advocate for the protection of our civil liberties, that is not first priority. And this priority here, priority here brings attention to that. Our greater interest above the kingdoms of this world is the kingdom of Christ. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. That's the flag that waves in our lives. Philippians 3 verse 20, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus. Also Philippians 2.19, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So how does this relate to our topic? I'm thinking about loyalty. When I think about this priority, what I'm thinking about is loyalty. I definitely feel a sense of loyalty to this country. And I can only imagine how much more loyalty a person might feel when they fought for the civil liberties of this country. And so I don't want to diminish that loyalty at all. But again, this is about balance and priorities. The greater priority, the greater loyalty is our loyalty to Christ and His kingdom. And so our concern should be with advocating His kingdom first. So what do we care about the most? This is a hard question. What do we actually care about the most? Recruiting people to our political party or recruiting people to the kingdom of God? What do we care about the most? Advancing our political ideology or advancing the gospel of Christ? We don't always have to choose between them, but sometimes we will. Imagine being in a boating accident with your family. And as you're tossed out of the boat, everybody's in the water, people are struggling, people are sinking, and you see your child sinking, and you see the family dog sinking. You may love that dog. You may cry for that dog. But you're going to reach for your child first. And sometimes that's the struggle here is there are things that we have in our lives that are deeply, deeply precious to us, like the civil liberties of this country. But we have to have the presence of mind and the priorities set in place so that we value the kingdom of God more. If at any point we are working harder to recruit people to our political party than we are working to bring people to Christ, I would say our priorities are out of balance. And something needs to be corrected. Advancing, and kind of, here's the sum of all of this. Advancing our political ideology at the expense of turning someone away from Christ is not a win. Advancing our political ideology at the expense, at disparaging the name of Christ or turning someone away from Christ is not a win. It's the worst possible loss. Satan won when that happens. We didn't win. Satan won. He will take the win however he can get it. Any way he can take a soul, he will take it. And I'm afraid this can and does happen. I know of at least one person right now who left the church and in explaining why they left the church, they did name secular politics and church business 
as being one of the reasons they chose to leave. And that may not have been the main reason, and it may not have actually been a real reason, but it was still something that weighed on them and pushed them away from Christ's church. So here's a really tough question. What would we be willing to sacrifice in the interest of the kingdom of God? What would we be willing to sacrifice in the interest of the kingdom of God? In the interest of advancing the gospel? In the interest of bringing more souls to Christ? What would you personally be willing to sacrifice? What would I sacrifice? Paul dealt with this exact issue when he was defending his apostleship over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I'll just read a few verses out of this section. But he dealt with this. Sometimes we might even have to sacrifice our personal liberties in the interest of advancing the kingdom of God. Paul said this is what he did. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 11 and 12. Paul said, If we have sown spiritual things for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? You see what he was saying there? He's saying, I have a right to be financially supported by you. I'm, I'm offering you a spiritual fruit here, and so it's reasonable that I would be supported physically from you. And he says in verse 12, If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not used this right, but have endured all things, lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. This is what it looks like to put the kingdom of God first. And I'm not saying this is easy, but I am saying this is how it should be. This is a hard thing to do. Paul had a right, a God-given right, to receive financial support from the Corinthian church, but he consciously chose not to exercise that right for fear of it becoming an obstacle to the spreading of the gospel. I'm not saying it's an easy thing to do, but it's something we must sometimes do. Sacrifice our own personal God-given rights in the interest of sharing the gospel. And so that's what the attitude looks like. When we prioritize advancing the kingdom of God over our personal interest in the civil liberties that we enjoy, that's the kind of decisions, hard decisions, we might have to make. So priority one, honor Jesus Christ. Priority two, advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And priority three, still closely related to all these things, is protect the church. The health of our church family I think is more important than the health of this country. That's a hard thing to say, especially in front of people who I know are veterans of the military of this country. So you decide if you agree with that statement, but I do think it's true. The health of our church family is more important than the health of this country, more important than our civil liberties, more important than our political affiliations. I think we can all agree that politics can be a divisive issue. <laughs> and for that reason, I think some of the instructions from Romans chapter 14 apply here. In Romans chapter 14, Paul is talking about controversial issues and how to deal with them in the church. You know what he never says? He never says, sit down, talk it out, and figure out who's right and who's wrong. That's not the spirit of Romans 14. The spirit of Romans 14 is that sometimes there is a right and a wrong, but you've got to sort out for yourself what you understand to be right. And he says this, 
Romans chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, he says, Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which we may edify one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. You all know that in the first century there was controversy over food. Even food created controversy. And Paul's point was, would you? Would you destroy another Christian so that you can eat what you want? That was his point. Prioritize our brethren over our political affiliations. And I completely realize that I may be slightly oversimplifying some of these things because political ideologies can be deeply woven into a lot of church issues. So I get that I might be slightly oversimplifying this, but I still think this priority is true all of the time. If Paul can say, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food, don't you think we could also say, do not destroy the work of God for the sake of politics? Can we say that? Can we say that's true? I think it's true. Having passionate opinions on political issues is allowed. So I don't want to create any confusion here. I'm not saying that you should have no feelings about politics. I'm not saying that you should not be involved in politics. You can have passionate emotions and thoughts about politics. I have strong opinions about politics. But we have to be extremely careful about projecting our political views onto other Christians. There is a risk associated with it. That's just how it is. There is a risk associated with it. And we have to decide if it's worth the risk. The reason I'm talking about this topic in the context of priorities is because there's so many different situations that we deal with. And it's really hard to prescribe a specific method for every possible scenario where we encounter secular politics in our lives. And that's why I think looking at it from the standpoint of priorities is so helpful. Regardless of the situation, these priorities are always true. And so in the context of protecting the church, we have to be aware of how our personal behavior affects the well-being of our brethren. Do you remember what Cain said after he murdered Abel? What did he say to God? What's the answer to that? Yes. We are accountable for the well-being of our brethren. We should take very seriously how our behaviors influence other people. And sometimes that might mean walking away from the argument as the loser. And if you know me, I hate, (laughs) hate losing. I hate losing. And I think that's why sometimes I struggled in our early marriage. I always (laughs) wanted to win the arguments. But that's not always the win. And this is true in our relationships with our brethren in the church. Sometimes it's actually in the best interest of our brother or sister in the church to walk away from a conflict as the loser because that's what they need. So politics can be just like almost every other secular issue. It cannot interfere with our unity in the church. Our fellowship in the church has to be based on our shared faith in Christ. It has to be, or it won't work. And so, if Matthew the tax collector can figure out a way to make it work with Simon the Zealots, any Christian person in the church of any political affiliation can find a way to make it work. 
So one more comment about secular politics. By the way, anybody notice there wasn't an end time to this afternoon's lesson? <laughs> I noticed. <laughs> so last question about secular politics. So those are our priorities, but we still have to address the elephant in the room, which is what then can we do if we feel our civil liberties are being jeopardized? And maybe that's the main thing I was supposed to be addressing. <laughs> what can we do then from a Christian perspective if we see our civil liberties are being jeopardized? And here's the thing. I know what I can do as an American citizen. But they, that may not perfectly align with what I can do as a citizen of the kingdom of God. I can't necessarily exercise every right I have as a citizen of the United States when I'm constrained by what God expects of me, the standard God expects of me as a citizen of His kingdom. So what do we do then? So the first answer we may not all like, but this is what the Bible says. What the Bible says is start by not worrying about it so much. This perspective comes from a passage we've already referenced back in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. This is where Paul is speaking to Christians who are slaves. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 21 and 22. Were you called while a slave? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can be made free, rather use it. For he was called in the Lord while a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he was called while free is Christ's slave. So Paul says two things here that are relevant. He says what I've already acknowledged, that if there is an avenue to freedom for a slave, then you should pursue that avenue to freedom, right? Some people would even take a stance so strong as to say it's your duty then to pursue freedom because a free Christian can do more than a Christian who's not free. And yet the first thing, though, Paul says is don't be concerned about it. If you have to live the Christian life without any real personal freedoms, the first perspective to keep in mind is don't worry about it. You can be an effective Christian in the kingdom of God without really having any personal freedoms. It can be done, and sometimes it must be done. And so start in this process by not worrying about it too much. The second thing that the Bible explicitly says to do as it relates to our civil liberties is in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Therefore I exhort first of all that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. And why? What, what are Christian people supposed to be praying about? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. So Paul acknowledges again, there is something desirable about the free practice of the Christian faith. Desirable enough that Paul tells us we ought to be praying for it. Pray for peace and quiet so that you can live the life that God wants you to live. And again, notice what our main concern is. We are supposed to be praying for liberty. But our main concern in praying for those liberties is so that we can exercise the Christian faith in the way that God wants us to. Not that we might not have other concerns about other civil liberties, but our main concern is with the free practice of the Christian faith. That's the thing that God wants us praying for. And then finally, one more thing. What do we do when we see our civil liberties being jeopardized? I've said, number one, don't worry about it too much. Number two, 
pray for government. God says to do that. And then number three, I find this very encouraging. Also remember that God is still in charge. Our influence over government and politics is limited. And that shouldn't make you feel helpless. Just the opposite. It should give you a sense of hope. Remember what Daniel said. Daniel 2, verses 20 through 22. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are His, and He changes, He changes the times and the seasons. He, God, removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. How should that make you feel? Not helpless. It should make you feel like you have no role whatsoever. But for me personally, it gives me a huge sense of relief realizing that God is always Lord. God is always King over every civil government. And I don't have to worry about it quite so much. You don't have to be sick over the direction of this country. You don't have to be. In fact, I would say God doesn't want you to be. You don't have to be sick over the direction of this country. You don't have to be sick over attacks on our personal liberties. You don't have to agonize over political elections. Because in my mind, I think that diminishes our faith in the power of God. The most important thing we can do is pray for our civil government. I think that's more powerful than any electioneering we might do. Not that we shouldn't do it, but prayer is more powerful, and these other priorities often supersede our other interests. So that was sermon number one. (laughs) Sermon number two (laughs) is about church politics. And I have less to say about this because I find this to actually be a much more straightforward issue. We need to talk about the role of electioneering in church business, especially the appointment of church leadership. And so again, the question is, does this electioneering or advocating have any place in the appointments of church officers? And I kind of divide this topic into two thoughts. One thought is the idea of motives, and the other thought is our methods. On a personal level, is it good for a person to desire a church office, elder, deacon, or evangelist? Yeah, the Bible specifically says that's good. This is First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul said, if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So it's not wrong to desire a work like that in the church. Desiring a good work, I think, is the right way to look at it. When we desire that office, what we're desiring is the work to oversee the church of God. That's an honorable thing to desire. However, I can imagine there might be other motives that exist. I'm not saying I've ever seen these motives, so I want to qualify this next section by saying I've never seen these motives. I'm just trying to imagine where things could go wrong, you know, politicizing the process of electing church leadership. So some things that could go wrong relate to the motives. It's right to desire the work, but that is quite different than the motive of Diotrephes in 3 John. John says that he loved to have the preeminence. That's what he loved about leading the church. Diotrephes loved to be first. He loved to lead and lord over the church. And so, if this ever happens, I think a person maybe could seek the eldership because they seek control. 
And that would obviously be the wrong motive. I think that goes without saying, but here I said it. If a person is seeking a position in church leadership because they seek control or they seek influence, that's not the right motive. I think another possibility would be a person might seek a role in church leadership because they think it will bring them respect or honor in the church. Again, I've never heard of this happening. I'm just imagining motives that could go wrong, and that's one of them. I could imagine a scenario where a person wants to be an officer in the church because they want the respect and honor that they think comes with it. Not too long ago, somebody told me it must be really hard being an evangelist, getting told how awesome you are all the time. I assured them that's not how it works. <laughs> if you think that, trust me, that's not how it works. And I've never been an elder or a deacon, but I imagine the same thing is true. I don't think that people go around telling elders and deacons how awesome they are all the time. That would be a good thing to do, though. If you want to do that, that would be a great thing to do. But that's not actually how it works. So if you're motivated to be a church officer because you want to be told how awesome you are the time, you're going to be disappointed, number one. And then secondly, that's the wrong motive anyway. So those are the motives that need to be moderated and kept in check as we think about our desire to be a church leader. And then the other thing that's worth mentioning is the method itself. So if you want to be a leader in the church... If you're seeking an office in the church, is there a place for some kind of electioneering? Like, what's the right way to get yourself into that position? I only see one way in the Bible to do that. The right way to advocate for yourself is to prove yourself qualified by the way you lead your life and the way you lead your family. I think that's how you advocate for yourself. So it's not wrong to desire a church office. The right way to achieve that goal is to prove yourself qualified. So you recruit support for yourself. You win support from the church, from your brethren, by proving yourself qualified. No other electioneering is necessary or appropriate. A few months ago, I took a personality test. And I was really baffled by one question on there. The question on there was, do you have strategic friendships? I didn't even know that was a thing. So if you're the kind of person that has strategic friendships, don't be insulted by this next statement. I didn't know that was a thing, and I was slightly horrified at the idea that a person might have strategic friendships. Because the way I interpreted that was having a friendship not because you value the person, because you value what they could do for you, because you value their resources, because you value their connections. Maybe you even value their finances. You don't value them. You value what they can do for you. And again, I've never seen this happen in the church. I'm just imagining methods that could be wrong. And that would be a wrong method for pursuing a church office. All of our relationships in the church should be sincere we would never seek out fellowship in the church because we're looking for people in our fan club. So in conclusion with all of this, thinking about secular politics and politics in the church, just to summarize everything, there are right reasons to be interested in secular politics. It's not wrong to be interested. There are right reasons to be interested in secular politics. 
And what we talked about is right ways and right priorities to engage in secular politics. The right ways to engage in secular politics will always prioritize honoring Christ, prioritizing the advancement of his kingdom, and prioritize the health of our brethren. That's how we engage in secular politics. And then this is also true of church politics in our pursuit of church leadership. There are right reasons and wrong reasons to desire church leadership. There are right ways and wrong ways to win the support of the church. Thank you for your attention and your interest in this topic. Related to the invitation, I think there is something to say about politics, actually. One of the reasons that people get involved in secular politics, and I wonder if this might even be the biggest reason that people get in secular politics, is because they want to be part of something bigger than themselves. Everybody feels a need inside of themselves to do something that's bigger than themselves. If that's what you're looking for, what you're looking for is Jesus Christ and His kingdom. That's what you're looking for. Everybody feels that. Everybody knows that. Where you will find that satisfaction is joining yourself to the kingdom of God. That's Christ's promise. That's His guarantee. That if you find Him, He will put you to work and you will find a purpose bigger than yourself. And maybe that invitation will appeal to you today. If there's any way the church can help you here, the invitation is open as we stand and sing.